Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jazz insight and analysis straight from the source. Oh my goodness! Goodness! Yeah! Yeah, let's go! This is your Utah Jazz Insider Report on the Zone Sports Network. Now joining Spence and Gordon, here's radio play-by-play voice of the Utah Jazz, David Locke. Show me! On 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. As he does every Wednesday at this time, the radio play-by-play voice of the Utah Jazz, David Locke, stops by the big show. All right, David, I, I would imagine over the course of the last few years, whether it's traveling no, I'm around. Interrupting, I'm interrupting you right out of the shoot because we're t- you were yeah, New York Yankees on the mind. So I had my Dave Winfield 31 jersey when I was a kid. Nice. And I had an Oscar Gamble. Hmm. Yankee jersey, and I cried when Thurman Munson died. Okay, so, um, you know, yeah, no, there I, you go. I appreciate it. in in the brotherhood, and now, and now you're a Giants guy, isn't that right? Yeah, you know, my father grew up in New York, so he brainwashed me to be a Yankee fan, and then you know, I would guess that if we probably look back at it, right about eighty eighty one is when they start making all their bad free agent signings, and I become eleven. And then developmentally, as you have learned with your son, 11-year-olds don't like to necessarily conform all the time. And so then I had to find my own team. And then I went to the Giants, but then I found out Johnny LaMaster sucked. And then the A's got really good, so you had to watch them because the Bash Brothers were on television almost every night. But no, then it stayed to be a Giants fan for, for most of that period of time. But, there, you know, there was a period where – where, you know, your highlights were only Willie McCovey doubling off the wall to knock the Dodgers out of the playoffs instead of actually getting you in the playoffs. Now, David, uh, check me if I'm wrong on this, but you played a little baseball in your day, didn't you? I did. I uh, played in a small uh, high school and was all right, and then I went to college and ended up with an ERA that was somewhat like a California zip code, and so that ended my career pretty quickly. Well, you moved on to another career. It's worked out just fine. Um, So here's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, I uh, I always enjoyed my interactions with Justin, with Justin Zanuck. He, he he was willing to sit down and talk basketball for 20, 30 minutes. He didn't have to do that for me. Uh, I would imagine over the course of the past few years, you have gotten to know him a little bit better than either myself or Gordon. What kind of loss is this for the Jazz? Uh, I, I would agree that I have. I um I feel, you know, I think I lost a friend, you know, I didn't lose a friend, but I mean, that's a, that's a good friend right there for me. Um, it, you know, we talked a lot of basketball and then we also became good friends and, um, we actually had a little tradition going where we both lived in Park City. So we would often, you know, rehash the entire game on the 30 minute drive back up the canyon together. Um, you know, side by side, often kind of as a joke. Uh, so yeah, it's a loss. Uh, he, he great. Great cap mind, great cap understanding as an agent, former agent. He really understood how to deal with agents. Um, and I, you know, I think Dennis is great as strength is as inexperienced as Justin might have been to the business. Just Dennis's greatest strength is to all the guys there, whether it's, you know, a basketball intern or a young guy he's hired, he believes he lets them all have their say and he wants them to, to share what they think. And so, uh, de- you know, Justin definitely had a loud voice in. Um, what was going on in that organization. So that's 
that's definitely a loss. Um, and they, you know, they've got some holes. They got to find someone who's a can deal with a cap. They got to find someone who's good with agents. And then hopefully, you know, I think uh, Dennis has really surprised, uh, surrounded himself with a really, really good young, bright crew. Um, there's some people in this organization that I don't think most of our fans know. Um, Andre Patterson, who was a great player at Indiana, is now in pro personnel. Bart Taylor, who uh, kind of grew up in the Spurs organization, is now in our organization, is a incredibly bright young guy. He'll be I'd be really surprised if he's not a GM in the league one day. Um, so he's got this young group, and I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't try to find somebody who can do a little cap, understand the agents, and maybe brings a little bit of, you know, a few uh, rings around the tree to the, to the staff a little bit. David, speaking of evaluating talent, you uh, have been doing uh, your due diligence as far as the players available in the coming draft. Uh, what is uh, what is the information coming to you? What's your uh, thoughts on the depth of the the talent pool and uh, what the Jazz uh, might uh, be have available to them? So I think this draft is far more interesting than it's been given credit for. It may so often we just evaluate drafts and where they are at the top. I, I think when this draft is over and we look back at it five, six years from now, uh, I think – I'm pretty certain of two things. I think there'll be a lot of really good NBA players, and I think there'll be a lot of, how did that guy go in front of that guy? You know, I really feel as though from probably, depends how far you want to stretch it, and Spence knows this really well also. I would say from 8 to 35, I could go 10 to 40. I mean, there's guys that are projected on one mock draft at 33 that are in another mock draft at 14. You know, Wade Baldwin, I saw in a mock draft at 10, he was a second-round draft pick at one point in time. Denzel Valentine, who's been at 10, is now at 22. Um, so, I mean, I think when you start to look at this draft, there's so much variance. Um, there's so much variance between, you know, what one person thinks is going to happen compared to another. And, you know, like I've scouted DeJounte Murray and Denzel Valentine. They couldn't be more different. Valentine's 6'6", established, non-athletic, knows the game, he's old. He'd be older than some of the players we have on our team. Um, DeJounte Murray doesn't know how to play 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan. He's incredibly fast. He's got insane athleticism. Um, you know, and I'd probably be more likely to, to draft DeJounte Murray than I would be to draft Denzel Valentine. And yet if you look at, you know, certain mocks, one of them sitting at 15, the other sitting at 32. And I think that summarizes where this draft is right now. I mean, Thon Maker, who we're talking about at 12, I saw in a draft at 32. Ante Murray, who I think we might draft at 12, was at 33. And there was another kid at that same point in the, who was in that same grouping in the draft express latest mock, who I still think could go 12. I kind of like the Murray kid, DeJounte Murray. Uh, he's young, 19, uh, out of Washington. But you referenced his size. He's a big kid. Uh, six five, uh, one seventy, but he's more of a point, David. And uh, I, Gordon referenced this uh, as well. We've seen a lot of mock drafts that have the Jazz taking a point guard. I can't imagine that's the case. I, I think it might be the case just because they're the best player available, and because I think the way we're, the, the point guards we're talking about are could be a Dejounte Murray, who would we say six four and a half, six five with a six nine wingspan. Wade yep. Baldwin, if he's there at twelve, I would be surprised if they take him. He's six four with what a six eleven wingspan. Now you're just taking a, you know, with the way switching defenses are, you're just taking another big body. I mean, I, the Jazz have actually been ahead of the game. I'm kind of trying to figure out what the next trend is because the last two Jazz draft picks have been so far ahead of the game. This is maybe the brilliance of Dennis. You know, the, drafting a six six Dante Exum. 
before switching the year before switching defenses became totally in vogue so that everybody just wants length at every position is pretty good and drafting Trey Lyles you know the year before everybody decides they need playmaking fours is pretty good so I, I'm trying to figure out what the next trend is I think it's a shooting five so I'm going to go try to see if I can find out who that is the the last mock draft I checked, uh, David, and the Jazz picks have been all over the place, according to these experts. The last one I saw was Sabonis, and I don't think that's outlandish because he really can pass the basketball. Maybe that's the next trend. Is it? You know, it's interesting. I, I talked about this with Scott and Hansley. Everybody's killing Oklahoma City for how predictable they got late in the game. They don't have anybody who can pass. You you can't you can't give up the ball if you're Durant and Westbrook if nobody can pass. And so, you know, when you look at uh, Sabonis, he, he really can pass the basketball. Um, he's pretty good, solid around the basket. I, I don't know what his range is going to be on a shot. I haven't watched him yet. He's the next guy on my list to watch. I'm watching Wade Baldwin right now. Uh, but I've talked to a lot of people, including people in the Jazz organization, who like him and like him a lot. So um, I, I think there's a real chance that uh, – if Sabonis is on the board, he gets drafted. Now, now make sure by the Jazz, make sure this is clear. There's probably ten guys that I can tell you. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised by Dejounte Murray. I wouldn't be necessarily surprised by Thon Maker. I wouldn't be surprised by Sabonis right now. I wouldn't be Wade Baldwin's there. I'm not surprised. Um, you know, and that's kind of my point of this. It's in the eye of the beholder, and I have great faith in Dennis that he's going to be able to find somebody who we're going to look back at and say, God, how did he know? Because every other time he's drafted someone, we've said, how did he know? You know, the less intriguing conversation is the second round, David, but with what Draymond Green has meant to the Warriors, and there are some examples over the years, including some players that have played for the Jazz, the second round, and I've always said this, late first round into second round, that's where you earn your paycheck. If you find guys that can play there, Rodney Hood, Rudy Gobert, then you've really done your due diligence. But I can't imagine... There are going to be four new faces on this team next year. Uh, but as far as the second round goes, generally speaking, you have that same sort of trust in the staff that they can at least find something of value? Well, this is where I think things get interesting. If we're in the Jazz, let's become the Jazz war room for a second. And if this draft is really as deep as I'm saying with kind of this, this 10 to 40 is kind of this mush pod of guys, and you're the Jazz, and you believe, and I don't know exactly what our second-round picks are, but if you certainly believe, you know what, actually, we're going to be taking a – we're going to shoot the moon, and we can go get a guy we're going to shoot the moon on in the second round, and we can at least get to some spot in the second round to get the guy we want. Well, then maybe you suddenly turn 12 into trade bait. Then maybe you're using 12 to go get that wing player that – gives you depth from the top down. I think something that this or, that really this organization needs when we talk about depth is maybe depth from the top down rather than just filling in all the gaps below. That's a hard one for somebody to swallow. But it, it would mean that maybe a Rodney Hood becomes your sixth man instead of your starting shooting guard or you do something. Uh, maybe Dante Axum, you know, gets a soft landing and comes back by playing uh, off the bench a little bit until he's completely ready. And so do you suddenly use 12 to go get one year, and you guys decide you're willing to trade a 12th pick of a draft for one year of Drew Holiday or one year of George Hill or one year of Rudy Gay or, you know, are those guys good enough that you're willing to trade the 12th pick for one year and hope you resign or just that it's that important for us to go make the playoffs that you're willing to risk that because you believe that you're going to be able to find a player you're going to want on your 15-man roster next year in the playoffs. Excuse me, next year in 
in the 15-man roster, and your goal is to make the playoffs. And so that guy you're drafting this year isn't going to really help you make the playoffs anyway. That, that I think, gets to be a really interesting internal debate. You know, if there's a guy you really like that you, you think is going to get to 30s, then maybe that's the roster spot. But you're right, Spence. You can't, the Jazz are not adding four new players that are going to be rookies to this roster next year. That's just that's not going to happen. David, you, you probably... know, does, or let me let me throw you another one. I mean, the other angle is does does Trey Burke and a high second get you Detroit's 18th pick, and then you use your 14th, you trade your 12th for someone? Right now, I mean, they're just playing with the equations here, but that's that's the preparation that they're going through right now. That they have to go through. If they can get a first for Trey and anything, you do that. By the way. Oh right. I mean, I don't. I don't think you. But maybe. I mean, if you're Detroit and their roster is pretty well set, and you got to re-sign Andre Drummond, and you don't really. Right. Maybe you know Trey Burke's a good fit in Detroit, not just because he went to Michigan, just because he's a good fit there. They need a backup point guard. They they don't have any backup guards. The rest of their roster's built. They don't have a lot of cap space. You know, they. I'm not sure. Maybe they don't like what they're going to 18, or frankly, maybe they think the same thing we think. They're just talking about is that, hey, if I can get the same player at 32 that I can get at 18, then I might as well trade 18, not have to pay the full salary on it, and go get and get a player who's who's going to be legit and Trey Burke. And I think Trey Burke will be a good backup point guard wherever he goes next. David, one of the interesting aspects to this whole thing is what Dennis told us. He said you can either go with a player who is prepared and may have his ceiling might be limited a little bit, but he's ready to help right away versus, as you have said, shoot the moon for a guy who may take some time to develop. If you were Dennis, which way would you go with this particular team, not knowing, obviously, who's available? Here's the thing about that. and I understand exactly in principle what Dennis is saying, and it makes – it sounds perfect. I'm not sure I believe it in practice. I'm not sure that that first guy you're talking about that's ready, that the ceiling's established, is any more necessarily ready than the unbridled talent. If you're drafting a guy and you're shooting the moon, he's an unbridled talent, then he could probably give you 12 or 14 minutes a game. And if you're drafting a guy you already know his ceiling, what you're basically saying is you think he's a backup. Right? Yeah. That's what you're basically saying. Because if you think he's a starter, then you're drafting him just because he's the best player available. But if, I, I've got an established guy who's 20. I mean, really, we're talking Denzel Valentine at this point. Yeah. Talking 22-year-old guy who's established. I know exactly who he is. But, uh, and he's a backup point guard or he's a backup 1-2 and he can play 16 minutes a night. You know what? I kind of almost feel like that. I'm not sure DeJounte Murray is this kind of staying with our theme, is exactly ready for 16 minutes a night. But on a lot of nights he probably is just because he's so talented. He had no clue. He's really a lot closer to, you know, playing on the street outside of Netta Harris Park in Seattle, Washington, than he is playing, you know, inside the Vivint Smart Home Arena right now with his game. But I just sometimes I'm not sure. I, I what Dennis is saying makes complete sense. It's always been accepted as truth. I'm just going to put a question mark on it because I think sometimes these guys that are so incredibly talented can just play. And I think we saw that this year. I mean, last year at this time, we're talking about Miles Turner's not ready. We're talking about Trey Lyle's not ready. We're talking about all these guys aren't ready. They're ready. They can play. In fact, that whole draft class could play. It was incredible. David, you referenced uh... – And frankly, 
and, and, and let me jump in. And frankly, the guy we're talking about who was kind of established is Norman Powell of Toronto, and he's just, you know, yeah, that's right. He can play 12 minutes a night, and they'll always be able to play 12 minutes a night. Let's get some thoughts from you on the uh, playoffs uh, right now. You referenced OKC, Golden State. Um, what can Cleveland learn from what OKC did defensively to at least make Golden State somewhat uncomfortable? If Cleveland tries to repu- replicate what Oklahoma City did, this will be a four-game sweep. There's nothing in Cleveland's personnel that allows them to do what Oklahoma City did. What Oklahoma City did was they switched one through five, so every position switched, and when they're big, got out there, they got tight enough on the ball handler to make it difficult for them to get around because of their length and difficult to get a shot off, but they more often than not got beat. And when they got beat, say it was Steven Adams, then Serge Ibaka at seven six eleven and Kevin Durant at seven feet tall came over and helped, or Andre Robertson at six seven with incredible length came over, or Russell Westbrook with the sickest athleticism in the league came over. If Cleveland tries the same thing, they're putting Channing Fry or Kevin Love tight on a ball handler and not letting him get a shot off, and they are going to get blown by, and there's no rim protection on the backside. So if they try that, it's going to be a disaster. The way Cleveland wins this series is they play Kevin Love at the five, deal with the fact that he's going to get annihilated. I think they play, should play LeBron at the five some of the time and try to outscore the Warriors. I think we're going to have if, – if Cleveland's going to win this series, they're going to shoot 40 of their 80 shots a game from three. They're going to get hot on two or three – for four games, and that's the only way. But if they try to replicate what Oklahoma City did, this is going to be a four-game sweep and going to be an epic final statement to the greatest single season in the history of the NBA. So do you think, David, that we could see upwards of 83s a game here? 80 would mean 50% of the shots taken in the game are three. League average was 28% this year. Both Cleveland and the Warriors were over 30. I don't think we can get to 50%. But I do think we could have games... I mean, Cleveland took the second most amount of threes of anyone in the NBA this year behind Houston, I think, percentage of shots. Um, so don't misunderstand who they are as a team. Uh, so I would suspect that we'll see something of that sort. Uh, with, and that's, I don't know. I mean, I'm listening to everybody talk about, well, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? Like, they don't have an answer. Their only answer to me is they just try to outscore more. They play LeBron at the five. If they I go, mean, or Tristan Thompson for a little bit, but I mean, even Tristan Thompson doesn't do that much for me. If they go Fry at the five, then LeBron, um, Iman Shumpert, Jr. Kyrie, uh, because Kevin Love may not have much of a place in this series. Uh, I, I know he can shoot it from the outside, but they don't utilize him on the block, and he's not going to guard Iguodala or Harrison Barnes. If they go Fry at the five to spread everything out with LeBron at the four, then those three wings is that is that something sustainable in your mind? Yeah, and I think Galvadova plays maybe over Shumpert in that set. I know it's smart to put Shumpert in that because he's a better defensive player and he can deal with Stafford Clay, but I might just take the 45% spot-up shooter in Galvadova instead. I mean, Galvadova's really one of the better just catch-and-shoot open shooters in the league. It's not a great – not going to beat you, not going to break you down. Shumpert's not. And so <clears throat> I only think the only way – see, here's what I think is interesting, Spence and Gordon – I thought the best game plan I've ever seen against the Warriors until Oklahoma City was Cleveland last year in the finals. Slow the game down. Make sure you got every shot by your best player. Grind it to a halt. Have the floor perfectly balanced every single time you shoot so that then whenever 
if you remember that series, whenever they got a rebound and they outlet to Steph, the the one big would shot Steph, and then whoever was guarding Steph would get back and guard Steph. So they had two guys on Steph in transition because LeBron was just pounding and posting and playing, shooting every time, and the rest of the guys were faced. They're not going to do that this time because Kyrie's not going to do that and Kevin Love's not willing to do that. So now they have to play a different way, and the only way I can think they can play is to try to just dramatically outscore this team. David, finally, uh, and you probably heard whispers about this before it was announced, before it became known publicly, but uh, the arena here is going to get a $100 million upgrade. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, and uh, uh, do you think it really is going to give the fan experience a, a major upgrade as well? Honestly, I'm pretty ignorant on this. Um, I don't know a lot. I actually kind of meant to send an email out today to kind of get updated because I'm pretty – I don't know what's going on, and I felt a little naked that this question might come, and then I wasn't prepared for it, so you kind of got me. Um, You know – the new, some of the new arenas in the league are terrific. I do know this. I, I know there have been a lot of people that have traveled with us, and there have been people that have been asking me inside the organization that anytime I saw something I thought was interesting to tell them. So, I mean, there's been a lot of work internally, a lot of research that's been being done to try to find out what's good in other arenas. And there's some really neat stuff um, in other arenas along the way. Uh, so, you know, it's nice that they're not tearing it down and trying to build a new one and that the that they're doing it in, you know, that they've built a building that remarkably is standing the test of time in a way that they can, um, that they can, you know, do this renovation inside of the arena without, um, without having to build a brand new one and, and putting that burden on us. Um, because I do think in small markets, I, I mean, it's unfortunate I lived through this, but I do think in small markets, these arenas are really, really important as cultural bases and change who your city are. I, I don't actually disagree with the people in Los Angeles and I'm not sure I totally disagree with the people in Seattle, um, that, in San Francisco, frankly, who wouldn't build various ballparks because those cities have so much going for them and so much going on. I'm not sure that they need that as a cultural epicenter, but there's no question that the Salt Lakes and the San Antonios and the Oklahoma cities and maybe the Portlands of the world uh, most certainly need these as, as cultural epicenters, and they, it changes who the city is. So th- this is an incredibly important building for our culture and who we are as a, as a city and, and how we're thought of in the landscape of cities in America. David, uh, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. Have a, a great week ahead. We'll chat with you next Wednesday. Thanks. I look forward to uh, more draft talk with you, Spence. Definitely. Definitely. Anytime. David Locke, radio play-by-play voice of the Utah Jazz. Um, you know, it, it, it the, the building needs uh, some upgrades. There's no doubt. Uh, it's been around for, what, 25 years now? Yes. Yeah, since, what was it, 91? Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it's held up remarkably remarkably well, but David's point is is is, is a good one. This city needs the Utah Jazz. This city needs the Vivint Smart Home Arena. Um, you know, sometimes the, the infrastructure conversation about what will happen outside of arenas can be a little bit overrated. But before this, bu- this building was, was built, this was a wasteland over here. And now there's, there's Gateway and there's City Creek, you know, a couple of stone, throw, stone throws away. There's, there's great restaurants uh, close by. It, it's, it's a staple in Salt Lake. Uh, and obviously, there was no talk about it, you know, the Jazz leaving. I'm not saying that, but... The city needs this building. They need the Utah Jazz. And quite frankly, with how well the building has held up, it's impressive, but it does need upgrades. Yeah, I I agree with that. And look, I mean, you mentioned the restaurants nearby, the businesses nearby. I mean, the Tribune had a story about this, and it means a lot of of business to folks uh, when you have uh, 40, 41 home dates 
uh, for the folks around here, you know, and look around the building right now. Look at look at the building we've seen uh, here. So, yeah, I think they want to preserve that, and uh, we'll see what they can add to it. I think there'll be an, maybe some upgrades in, in, you know, food choices and things like that. You know, I don't know what else. So the structure. You maybe some see- sushi? Hmm? Sushi. Okay. What would be on a Utah Jazz sushi roll? Brine shrimp. Why brine shrimp? Because the Great Salt Lake. Brine, okay. Brine shrimp. Okay. I, I don't think you can eat brine shrimp, though, can you? So you probably wouldn't want to put that on a sushi roll. I'm not a big sushi guy. Sorry. You're not? I haven't really ever given it a chance. Yeah. I, At I, this point in the game, you've, you've never really given sushi a chance. No. But you like seafood. Yeah. Give it a try, man. Okay, I will. I will. I, I just haven't. And I, a lot of my friends do, and they say, "Hey, you got to try this." And I just never have gotten around. We've got to some it. great sushi restaurants in this in the city. You should yeah. check it out. All right, I will. But anyway, this is a, this is a terrific arena, and I think they're going to make upgrades left and right, and it, it'll be uh, fun to see uh, as this. When when did they say it was going to be done by? Like two thousand next off season? Did they? Is say? that what it was? Mm-hmm. I believe. I don't have a ton of inside info, 